and we are live what's going on everybody i am the grumpy old dude hopefully everybody can hear us and see us and all that good stuff and my special guest today is none other than daryl davis how are you doing sir hey ed i'm doing great man thank you for having me on well thank you for coming on it's it's uh it's been something I've been hoping for for quite a while to get you on my channel and pick your brain. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much to pick there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, and before we get into it, I want to say a very special thank you to my beautiful wife, Amber, for letting me get some of my merch to show out on my channel. <laughs> Excellent. As everybody knows, I love my coffee, so another coffee cup is definitely a great gift. And now, what does the uh, acronym uh, G-O-D stand for? Ah, okay. <laughs> I am the grumpy old dude. <laughs> now, I don't know if um, everyone here is familiar with Daryl Davis, but he is a man of many talents. He's a musician, an actor, a writer, an activist, amongst many other things. And Daryl, over the past 30 years, how many people have you helped get out of the Klan? I'd say just over a couple hundred. That is amazing. And you know, and that I mean that would not, you know, that would include other uh, white supremacist affiliations as well. Not not just, you know, KKK. See, that was going to be my next question. It It's not just the KKK. You've worked with other groups. Yeah, mostly KKK, but yes, other groups included. Now, I, I know there's a little story about how this started. Um, and I, I really want to kind of hear, you know, a little bit more about that. Like what what got you going down this um this journey of getting people out of extremist groups yeah it was never you know really a planned thing and that was not my original goal my my original goal was to explore racism after i had experienced a racial incident at the age of 10 with people throwing things at me being the only uh, black scout in a parade and i did not understand it so I want to find out why people think that way. You know, what, what leads them to that, to that kind of behavior and that mentality? Well, who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has a history of practicing that type of a behavior and people on people who they, uh, who don't believe as they believe or who don't look like, you know, like they look. So why not go to the horse's mouth? I mean, anybody can can write a book based on uh, on other people's research. Like for example, if you want if you want to write a book on Christopher Columbus, you know you can go to the library or now on Google Google or whatever, right? And find <laughs> find all kinds of information and write your own book and never even have talked to Christopher Columbus. But if he was around and you're able to interview him, all the better. So I knew a lot about the Klan. I I bought tons of books on the Klan and, and similar minded associations and groups. So now I, I figure, well, why not go, go right to the source? But what prompted me was 
just by happenstance, you know, I'm a musician by trade and I was playing in a country band up in a town called Frederick, Maryland at a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge, which had a reputation of being an all white lounge. Not that uh, black people could not come in, but black people did not go in by their own choice. You know, they weren't welcome. And anytime you go somewhere where you're not welcome and you know, there's alcohol in the place that doesn't always combine very well, right? So here I was in the place and uh, we had just finished playing a set. I was the only black person in the band and in the place. And we're taking a break. A white gentleman came up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder and remarked how much he enjoyed, you know, our music and my piano playing. And, and I thanked him and shook his hand. And he said that this was the first time he'd heard a black uh, man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I wasn't offended, but I was rather surprised that he didn't know the history behind Jerry Lee Lewis's style. And I proceeded to explain to him that uh, Jerry Lee and I both got it from black blues and boogie woogie piano players. Yeah. And he didn't believe that either. Uh, he didn't believe Jerry Lee got anything from black people. And even after I told him, you know, that I know Jerry Lee and Jerry Lee has told me, you know, these kinds of things, he didn't believe that either. But he was so fascinated that he wanted me to come back to his table and let him buy me a drink. Well, I don't drink alcohol, but I went back to his table and I think I had a cranberry juice. And he paid for it. And he took his glass and he clinked my glass and cheered me. And then he announces that this was the first time he'd ever sat down with a black man and had, and had a drink. And now I was like totally uh, mystified because at that point in my life, I, I'd sat down with literally thousands of right. white people or anybody else, you know, and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. So how is it that this guy who appeared to be a lot older than me had never done that? And innocently, I asked him why. And he didn't answer me at first. He stared at the tabletop. I asked him again, and his friend sitting next to him elbowed him on the side and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And now, you know, what's the secret, you know? Tell me. <laughs> he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I just busted out laughing because <laughs> I didn't believe him. I mean, why would a Klansman come up to me and hug me and, and praise my, my, uh, my talent, you know, and then, and then want me to come back to his table yeah. and, and let him buy me a drink? You know, it, in a sense, uh, I was wrong. Uh, I mean, yes, you know, I know a lot about the Klan and, and that's not their history, but I had engaged in a form of prejudice myself. I did not know this guy, you know, and he said he was in the Klan. So why would I assume that, you know, he might, he may not treat me as I want to be treated? Yeah, he does have certain attitudes, et cetera. But I had already, you know, jumped to a conclusion that this guy can't be in the Klan because he's buying me a drink. He's treating me nice. Okay. So I had cast my own prejudice upon him without getting to know him the same way that we accuse the Klan of, of prejudging us. So anyway, he was very friendly and, you know, we chatted and he gave me his number and wanted me to call him whenever I would come back to this bar to play because he wanted to bring his friends, you know, Klansmen and Klanswomen to see the <laughs> black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. So, you know, hey, I'd call him, he'd show up and he'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen you know, they didn't come in their in their you know robes and hoods, right? Right. They came in you know regular street clothes, and they would uh, gather around the bandstand and watch me play with the band. They'd get out on the dance floor and dance, and then on the bricks 
I would make my way over to his table to say hello. Some of them would hang there. They were curious about me, want to meet me. Others would see me coming and get up and they'd scurry across the room to the other side. It was like, you know, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to touch you. We just want to look at you, you know, which was fine. And that went on until the end of that year. And I, I quit that band and I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and whatever else. And, you know, he was out of sight, out of mind. And it was much time later that it dawned on me, Daryl, the answer to your question that had been plaguing you ever since you had rocks and bottles thrown at you, which was, how can you hate me? You don't even know me. The answer fell right into your lap. Who better to ask than somebody who would join the KKK? Get yeah. back in touch with that guy and get him to fix you up you know, with, with some clan leaders and interview them, write a book. Because all the books that I had were written by white authors. Obviously, you know, they would have a easier access to somebody like that with uh, less fear of retaliation or retribution. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> I figured, well, you know what? Let me be the first black author to sit down face to face and interview these people in person and get the perspective from this dynamic, not white to white, but white to black. Okay. And, and now, when when you got back in touch with him and and you asked him about this, like, what what was his response? Well, it's funny how I got back in touch with him. Uh, you know, this was a long time later had passed. I had to look and look for his phone number. I finally found it, and I called him. The number had been disconnected. Uh, he had moved. I had to track him down. So I got an address on him. He didn't have a phone. So I literally showed up at his apartment unannounced, you know, out of the blue. And I knocked on the door one evening and he opens the door. He's like, Daryl, you know, what are you doing here? And he stepped out into the hallway and looked up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with <laughs> me, right? <laughs> and when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he had to turn around and come back in. He was like, you know, what are you doing, man? You know, are you still playing? What's going on? And I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, I need to talk to you about the Klan. And he told me that he had since, you know, since he had last seen me, which is, you know, a while back, he had since quit the Klan. And he went into this long dissertation as to why he quit the Klan, uh, which I later found out to be uh, false. Yes, uh, he was no longer in the Klan, but it wasn't because he had quit. It was vanished. And uh, what had happened was, I found this out later on. Um, you know, back then, a fellow named James Venable, who was, uh, you know, he, you know, remember James Venable? Yeah. You know, yeah, he owned Stone Mountain and stuff. Well, every Labor Day, right, he would have uh, Klan groups from all over the country. This would probably be like the only time when these Klan groups who were generally rivals with each other yeah. would, would come together atop a Stone Mountain and, and have a, you know, a big, big rally and cross-lighting on Labor Day, on that weekend. So, you know, if a whole Klan group couldn't make it, you know, they might all pitch in some money and send one representative to represent their particular faction. Yeah. Because uh, at this point, you know, th there was no Klan Central. There were all these factions of Klan. And so the uh, the Klan here in Maryland, this particular group, they had uh, pooled together some money and selected this guy to go and, um, and represent the Maryland uh, Invisible Empire chapter, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And then he was to come back 
and give a report as to what took place at Stone Mountain. And apparently when he came back, he, he gave this report that somehow didn't add up. You know, it, it made the, uh, the uh, Grand Dragon uh, a little um, suspicious. And so he looked into it and called down to James Venable or something and found out this guy never showed up. Uh-oh. So the guy was making up stuff. You know, he said he'd gone down there and he comes back and reports something you know that didn't even happen. Turns out uh, he's a big Hulk Hogan fan. The guy took the money that was pulled together for his um, travel expenses to go to Atlanta and went to our local sports arena to watch Hulk Hogan wrestle. <laughs> so he, okay. he got he got banished. But uh, anyway, he's the one who um, I had to persuade him to give me the uh, contact information for the Grand Dragon. And he didn't want to do it, but uh, he gave it to me on, on the condition that I not tell uh, the Grand Dragon where I got his personal info. And he warned me. He said, Daryl, do not go to his house. He will kill you. I mean, this guy genuinely liked me. And he was genuinely looking out, you know, for my safety, which I appreciated. Yeah. But that was the whole reason I wanted to sit down with this man. Why, why would you even think about killing me? All you see is, a, is my skin color. Help me understand what's going on through your mind. I mean, I realize I'm putting myself at, per at peril, but I have to know what's going on. And I, I, I didn't really feel endangered, but I did have that in the back of my mind because certainly this guy knows his own grand dragon a lot better than I do. I never even met the guy. Yeah. So, so you, you get, you get this contact information and everything. And, and like you said, you had it in the back of your mind that this could turn dangerous. Sure. And you still went ahead and, and tried to talk to these people. Right. And now this, like you said, though, this was mainly for your own interest. This was for you to get an answer to a to your own questions. That's correct. And I want to share that in the form of a book, uh, you know, to help people maybe understand the mentality because, you know, you, you cannot, this, this, pro, this uh, country has a major problem, a major disease, a sickness that, that is uh, afflicting it called racism. And I didn't know the answer, um, but maybe if I provide the reasons why people arrive at this ideology, maybe somebody smarter than me can figure out how to address it. So I'll put it in a book. Maybe people read the book and we can come up with some kind of solution. You can't come up with a solution until you know what the problem is. You know, you can speculate all you want, but but if I sit down with a Klansman and he tells me why he's this way, then I have more information as to how I can address and perhaps heal him. So it, it wasn't just for you to get an answer to why they feel that way. It was for you to try and 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 bridge that divide and see if you can't get them to change. No, uh, initially, no. I, I, I figured, you know, that wasn't that wasn't within my purview. I didn't have that ability. Okay. Um, you know, I wasn't a psychologist or sociologist, but I figure if I can provide somebody else who works in that field with that information, they can come up with with a solution and do it. My, because I I did not really think at the time that these people would change because. 
you know, when you were a kid, when I was a kid, we all heard the the adages, a tiger does not change his stripes. A leopard does not change his spots. So why would I think that a Klansman would change his Robin Hood? In other words, his ideology. Well, obviously I was wrong. The fact is a tiger and leopard do not change their stripes and spots because they were born with those stripes and spots. They can't change them if they wanted to. A Klansman, a Klanswoman is not born with that robe and hood, that ideology, that is a learned behavior. And what can be learned can be unlearned. So when, when initially, when I just set out, I just wanted to know, how do you arrive at this? How can you hate me? You don't even know me. And I figured I just get those answers, put them in a book, and I would be done. That was it. But, you know, when you are sitting across from somebody, even if you don't know them, and they may even be the most vile and vehemently racist and violent person you've ever encountered, you can still find something in common. And the more you find in common with that person, even though you may not agree on some other things, the more you begin to humanize each other. Yeah. And it's hard to look somebody in the face and you're speaking the same language. You like the same movies. You like the same actor. You might like the same music. And, and you realize, you know, this person has more in common with me than he does in contrast. You know, he may be a good person with some bad ideas or some bad thoughts, but that's, you know, that's what I found. And the more I would see them, the more we would find in common. And over time, I saw a change happening. Like uh, the Grand Dragon, when, when I met him, he was a Grand Dragon. And over time, over a couple of years, he went to the uh, position of Imperial Wizard, national leader. Uh, for the listeners who may not know, Grand Dragon simply means state leader, like a governor. Uh, Imperial Wizard means national leader, like a president. And I noticed him changing even in his language. Like he put out a newsletter to his uh, chapter of, of, of his clan. Uh, and he would use all kinds of, you know, racist terms and things like that. Uh, and then the more he got to know me, the, the language in his newsletter changed. You know, there were more respectable terms. So it was kind of like, you know, a gradual thing. And uh, he, when he became an imperial wizard, um, well, before that time, he, I, I would invite him down to my house. And he would sit right here where I'm sitting right now at my dining room table. And he would have lunch, dinner with me. Uh, sometimes he'd bring his armed bodyguard. But after a while, he trusted me that much. He came by himself. And for two years, I never went to his house. I was never invited there. Um, after he became Imperial Wizard, he began inviting me to his home. And I would see his clan den where he'd have his meetings, um, you know, take some more notes, take some pictures. And then he would invite me to clan rallies. And I'd go to these rallies. And I remember one time uh, I came to one of his rallies, I got a standing ovation uh, from his members. You know, and that boggled the minds of all the police that were, you know, gathered around to make sure nothing happened um, with anybody, not, not just me, but the public. And he, he told them, you know, that I was doing, I was writing a book on him and that uh, he felt that I'd, I had treated him very fairly. Uh, he respected me, et cetera. Uh, you know, so we were learning from each other. And I can tell you something, Ed, I have been to 57 countries on six continents. There are 195 countries in our world right now, currently. 
Uh, so I haven't been to all of them, and I don't have any plans to go to all of them. <laughs> but, but, but I've been to 57. And I can tell you something with, with absolute, you know, 100% believe this. No matter how far I go from our own country, whether it's right close by to Canada or Mexico or even halfway around the globe, no matter how different the people may be who I encounter, they don't look like me. They don't speak my language. They don't worship as I do or practice the same culture I do. When I get back home here, I always conclude one thing. We all are human beings. And as such, we all want the same basic five things in our lives. We all wanna be loved. We all wanna be respected. We all wanna be heard. We all wanna be treated fairly. And we all want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we take those five core values and employ them in any culture or society in which we may find ourselves with which we are unfamiliar, I will guarantee you that our navigation will be much more smooth and much more positive. Of course, there, you know, there are always going to be people who, you know, on all sides, who will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist. Um, you know, and there's, there's no changing them. But even if some of those people are willing to sit down and have a conversation, there is an opportunity to make a difference. And it's, and it's, it's how we communicate with one another, not just what we say, but how we, we communicate, how we, how we converse. I'm a firm believer that a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Nothing gets Absolutely. solved until you talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Now, you're you're doing all this with this man. When did it start to become that you know people were coming to you and and leaving these groups? You know, it not not even just the clan. Yeah, you know, a clansman or clanswoman is not stamped out of a standard cookie cutter. They come from all different walks of life, all different educational backgrounds. Um, so there, there's no like set time from the time I meet somebody and and then I can say, well, it, it takes two weeks for them to do this or two, it takes two months, two years. Right. No, they're all different. But what I notice the one thing that they do have in common, when I sit down and converse with them initially, they do not ask me any questions. I ask all the questions. Uh, why would they ask me anything? I'm inferior. I don't have anything to offer them. You know, so like you know, in a normal conversation, like I sit down with you, and I might say, "So Ed, you know, you know, how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing fine. How are you?" It, it, it's reciprocal. Or if I say, you know, you know, what do you think about um, President Trump's policy on this or President Biden's policy on that? You tell me what you think about it, and you say, well, "What do you think, Daryl?" You know, we go back and forth. They don't do that. Because I don't have anything of value to offer them. And They'll answer my question, but they don't want to hear what I think. Just, and to, let, still, just yeah. to let you know, I I don't like either one of them. I think all politicians are snakes, but that's my own personal opinion. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then you want to know mine. But um, they don't ask me anything. And because, like I said, I have nothing of value to offer them. And this goes on. It may go on for weeks. It may go on for months. 
And then one day, just out of the blue, you know, we're talking. It, it might be the 10th time. It may be the 50th time. Who knows? All of a sudden, I'll ask a question, and they'll answer it, and they'll say, well, what do you think? I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it caught me off guard. They're yeah. asking me my opinion. I have some modicum of value. Uh, so I always, you know, try to be transparent and answer the question as best I can. If I, if I know the answer uh, and I have a fact, it's factual, I will tell them, you know, this yeah. is the fact behind it. This is it. If, if, uh, if I don't know it for a fact, I will say, well, this is what I think. This is my opinion. Because, you know, I, and I will never sell my opinion as a fact. I will let you know it's my opinion. But if I know it factual that two plus two is four, I will tell you it is a fact. And um, they check it out. And when it and then when it resonates with them, it establishes my credibility. And they begin asking more questions. And then they realize, hey, you know, this is somebody that I can trust to give me a right answer or whatever. Yeah. And that allows them to invest more um, humanity in me. We, 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 we humanize each other more. So we start out uh, on opposite ends of the spectrum and we're adversaries. And the more we talk, we find things in common and the gap closes. So now we're in a relationship. We talk more, we find more things in common. And now we're heading to a friendship. We don't have to agree on everything, but we're friendly with one another. And by the time you get there, you know, the, the, the trivial things that you have in contrast such as the color of your skin, or whether you go to a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or a temple, begin to matter less and less. And then people began questioning, why was I involved in this in the first place? Yeah. So I, I've learned a lot. And, and basically what happened is this, you know, I was not expecting anybody to quit. Uh, like I said, I thought people, you know, that, that's who they are. You know, Tiger doesn't change his stripes. So I just want to know why, you know, why you're into this. But when the first person quit, I was shocked. I was surprised. And then it happened again and again. I thought, you know, well, something's happening here. You know, I need, to, I need to keep on talking. And that's why I do it. So you, you kind of um, stumbled across a, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a good a tool. Yeah, a good method. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and part of the key is this. Learn as much as you can about somebody who has an adversarial opinion. It doesn't always have to be about race. It could be about abortion, uh, global warming, the war in the Middle East, nuclear weapons, uh, the presidential election. You know, whatever the, the hot topic is, find out their position. How do they arrive there? Put yourself in their position. Would you think the same thing if you were in their shoes? Um, but also know who you are. Have your self-esteem in check and be sure to keep your emotions behind you. Don't let your emotions get out in front of you uh, because that will devolve the conversation. They are used to offending people and they are, used, they, they are experts yeah. at pushback. They've heard it all and they know the, the buttons to push to cause you to go off and then you push back and then the conversation shuts down. Either shuts down or ends in violence or something. All right. Yeah. So, you know, realize that and don't let your emotions get in front of you. Keep them behind you. Like, for example, I asked this one guy uh, and I've asked millions of them the same question, more or less. 
how can you hate me? We don't even know me. Well, Mr. Davis, you know, black people are prone to crime. And that, you know, that is evidenced by the fact that there are more black people in prison than white people. Now, what he is saying is absolutely true. There are more black people in prison than white people. And, you know, one's perception is one's reality. So if you see more black people in prison than you see white people, then it's a logical conclusion that there must be more black criminals than white people. They're prone to that. But since it fits your narrative, you don't, you don't research any further. If you were to research further, you might find out that there is also an imbalance in our judicial system, right? Yeah. But, you know, you stop there. So he's, so I'm sitting two feet in front of this guy and he's calling me a criminal, but I'm not pushing back. I'm listening to him. People want to be heard. I'm allowing him that. I'm respecting him. I'm not respecting what he's saying, but I'm respecting his right to say it, right? So I'm giving him two of those core values. And then he goes on to say that uh, black people um, are, are inherently lazy. Well, we prefer to scam the government welfare system. We don't want to work. We always have our hands out for some kind of free program or whatever. And so now I'm being called lazy on top of being a criminal. So I'm just sitting back and I'm listening. And then he tells me that uh, black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. Oh, geez. Yeah. And the, and the, the larger the brain, the more capacity for intelligence. The smaller the brain, the lower the IQ. Now, there had been a book out by this fellow named Dr. Charles Murray called The Bell Curve, which yeah. kind of alluded to that nonsense. Now, even though these people may not have read the book, they touted around like it's, you know, the gospel, <laughs> you know. Well, this book says by Dr. So-and-so, you know, so it must be true. And so now I'm told I have a small brain. I'm unintelligent. And he said that this is evidenced by the fact that year after year, uh, black high school kids consistently score lower on the SATs than on white kids. Again, this is true. The data will show that. But if you research it, you also find out that um, where do most black kids go to school? In the inner city. Where do most white kids go to school? In the suburbs. Yep. It's a well-known fact that inner, inner city schools are not funded as well as suburban schools. They don't have the facilities, the the, uh, the textbooks, all this other kind of stuff. And black kids who go to school in the suburbs score just as well, if not higher, than some of the white kids. White kids who, who go to school in the inner city are prone to score just as low. Some even score even lower than some of the black kids, which says it has absolutely nothing to do with one's skin color or one's brain size, but has everything to do with the quality of the educational system in which that child was enrolled. But, you know, I don't, I don't you know, attack him. I just listen to him, all right, because he wants to be heard. So when he first walks into the room and sees me, he has a visceral reaction because I do not look like the object of his affection, right? Yeah. So I need to bring his wall down, you know, because, you know, you know, let him, you know, because he wants to be alpha dog and establish my inferiority immediately because that's what gives him that level of supremacy. You know, you can't be supreme unless you have somebody under you, you know? So he has to, you know, put, put me in my place. So I allow him to do that. Uh, I'm gonna sit back and listen. And then his wall begins coming down. 
And after he has radiated all of his uh, vitriol, and I've listened to it and I've not pushed back, he feels compelled to reciprocate. And now he's also curious, how come I haven't pushed back? Most people yeah. push back on him. You know, he wants to know, do I feel that way about myself? He wants to hear what I have to say. So it's, now it's my turn to speak. I could go on the attack, on the offense, and attack him verbally. I could say, no, you are the criminal. You are the one hanging black men from trees and bombing their churches and dragging them behind pickup trucks and all that. And I would be 100% correct because the Klan has a history of that, right? But if I did that, that wall would go right back up. His ears would be yeah. plugged, all right? I want to keep the wall down. So rather than go on the offense, I go on the defense. And I say, listen, I hear what you're saying. However, I don't have a criminal record and I'm black. I've never been on welfare. I'm black. I've never measured my brain size, but I think it's probably the same size as anybody else's. And as far as my SAT scores go, my SATs got me into college. I have a college degree. Right. Now, I'm not trying to throw that in his face like he's ignorant. I don't know what he has. Uh, well, I do know what he has. I know I know he barely made it out of high school. But even if he went to college, I'm, I'm saying I went to college as well. And that puts me at a certain level of education. So I'm not attacking him. I'm just defending myself. And then here's what happens. He goes home and he reflects on what transpired during the day. And he's like, you know, man, I just had a three-hour conversation with a black guy, and we didn't come to blows. Yeah, you know, and, and what he said about such and such, it, it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But what he said about this is true. Oh, but he's black. So, so they began having some kind of a cognitive dissonance that he realizes what I said was true, but the truth came from a black source. So how can that be? So then it becomes a dilemma. The dilemma is. Do I disregard that Daryl guy's skin color and believe it to be true because I know it's true and now I have to change my ideological direction? Or do I consider his skin color and know that he's telling the truth, but I continue living a lie? That's the dilemma and that's up to them. I didn't convert them. I just simply offer them a different perspective and that perspective is resonating with them because one's perception is one's reality. You cannot change anybody's reality. Only they can do that, But with, whether it's real or not. But what you can do is you can give them different perceptions. And if they resonate with one of your perspectives or perceptions, they will change their own reality. Absolutely. And I, listen, you're getting mad respect in my comments here. <laughs> You know, um, yeah, everybody's loving this. And uh, Ivan Humble says a clip of you is what inspired him to do what he does today. You know, thank you, Ivan. That's awesome. You know, um, yeah, it, you know, I, I, I can't really, you know, say anything against any of that because I know, as for myself, it was somebody presenting me with actual facts and evidence to counter the beliefs that I held. And that's what, you know, got me out of the movement is seeing, you know, that what I was presented through propaganda wasn't necessarily true. So if that one thing isn't true, 
what else isn't true? You know, and I started digging and found out that none of it was true. <laughs> you know, or, well, I won't say none of it because they always do throw in a little bit of factual stuff just to right, make to it give them credibility. Yeah, give it some, you know, legitimacy. But those little bit of actual facts, you know, don't stand up to all the disinformation. You know, um, so who, uh, how did it come about? Like who, what was, what was the first person that, that left? Like, did they come to you and say that, you know, because of you, they were leaving? Actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, I had this uh, exalted Cyclops in my car. Okay. And we were riding around and we're talking about, you know, different things. And we got on the topic of crime. And he made the statement, which I've since heard a million times, that um, all black people have within us a gene that makes us violent. And I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm driving, he's sitting over here. And he says, well, who's doing all the drive-bys and carjackings in Southeast? He was referring to Southeast Washington, D.C., which is predominantly black. There's some whites who live there, but it's predominantly black and, uh, and very high crime ridden. And I said, okay, well, yeah, it's black people over there. I said, but who's doing all the crime in Bangor, Maine? You know, white people, because that's what live, you know, what, who, who lives up there. I said, you know, you're not considering the demographics of the area. He says, oh, no, no, no. That has nothing to do with it. You know, you all have this gene. I said, listen, man. I said, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a carjacking or a drive-by. You know, how do you account for that? This man did not hesitate one second. He answered me like that. He said, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. <laughs> how do you argue with somebody that, that far out, right? I couldn't even bite into that response. So I'm, I'm speechless, just you know, driving around dumbfounded. And uh, he's looking at me all smug and secure, like, uh-huh, you see, you got nothing to say. So I figured, okay, well, he's not coming to where I am. I need to go to where he is. So I made an, an analogy. I said to him, I said, well, you know, all white people have a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. He's like, well, how do you figure? I said, name me three black serial killers. <laughs> he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. I said, here, I'm going to name one for you. I named one. I said, just give me two. He couldn't do it. I said, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, Son of Sam, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. I said, they're all white. I said, son, you are a serial killer. He says, Daryl, I never killed anybody. I said, your gene is latent. hasn't come out yet. He, goes, <laughs> he says, he says, well, that's stupid. I said, well, duh. I said, you're right. It is stupid. But it's no more stupid for me to say that about you than what you said about me. Now, and he got he got very, very quiet. I needed I needed to hear this story a couple of months. Well, uh, just a few weeks ago, right before I just did my last debate on that same topic, because I could have used that in that debate. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he, he got quiet. And then a few minutes later, he changed the subject. But within a few months, he had left, and his robe was the first robe I got. 
Nice. And, you know, I mean, and I'll tell you what I did. You know, I, I never had a clan robe before. Um, you know, what, what, what am I going to do with it? Uh, I, I knew I wanted it. You know, he, he was going to trash it. And I said, no, give it to me. He goes, you really want it? And I said, yeah. And I didn't know why, but I brought it home and I uh, looked at it. And believe it or not, I went over to my mirror and I put it on. I put it on and I stood in front of my mirror and I looked at myself and I wanted to see if I felt powerful because I've seen some of these people ah. in their regular clothes and they're like, you know, Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for their, a great metropolitan newspaper, the Daily Planet or whatever, right? And then when they, you know, rip off that suit and that big S is on their chest, Superman, they feel all powerful. I've seen that same thing happen with these people in their street clothes and then see them in their clan robes. It's a whole metamorphosis that goes on. Uh, so I put on this robe to see if it had any power to it. And it didn't. And in fact, I looked pretty stupid in it. So, <laughs> so I took it off and um, I hung it downstairs you know, in my basement. And it, it remained, you know, half my basement is finished where I would have band rehearsal and the other half is, is like a laundry area. So unfinished. So I, I hung it with a coat hanger over one of the rafters. And I would see it every morning when I go downstairs to get fresh clothes or do laundry. And over time, it, it, it kind of like just blended into the woodwork. I, I, it was there, but I didn't see it, you know. And every three or four months, a uh, water meter reader guy comes to my house and goes down in the basement to read the water meter so he can send me a bill. And usually he's always, you know, hi, Mr. Davis, how you doing? Go downstairs, get, you know, get, get the numbers. And two weeks later, I get a bill. Guy comes in, hi, Mr. Davis, goes on downstairs. And when he leaved, when he left, he didn't even say goodbye. He just kind of like gave me kind of a weird look. I, I had no idea what was wrong with this man. And it was later on that day, it dawned on me, oh, crap. You know, that guy went down in the basement, he saw that robe. I was wondering, you know, what is going on in this house? <laughs> so I took it from the basement and hung it in the closet. Um, we have a question from Marcus Aurelius. Um, all righty. I like that name. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you think that racial supremacists lack a sense of identity or community and so use race to find that? Yes, that that is the case with, uh, with a number of people. Because, you know, if you're secure in your identity or you're secure in your community, you don't necessarily need to belong to anybody else yeah. or, 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 or you're not seeking that kind of thing. Um, something is missing in, in, in their at home or, or, you know, functionality. They came from some kind of dysfunctional uh, upbringing, and which is not always the case, but that is what causes people to seek, to seek out that missing element somewhere else. And, and they get it in a group, whether it's a gang, whether it's, you know, um, some, other, some other type of group. Um, it could be a, ra a racial group, a black supremacist group, a white supremacist group, uh, anything that, that will identify with them and give them the respect or the nourishment that they were not getting in their school place, their workplace, their home life. Yeah, and, and in some cases, it it really does come down to peer pressure and indoctrination. Um, yeah. I've, 
I've seen a lot of that. What I've seen, yeah, I, you know, I, there, there are different reasons why people join these organizations. Um, for example, some some is a is a situation like my grandfather was in the Klan, my daddy's in the Klan, yeah. I'm in the Klan, and my kids are going to be in the Klan. So it's a strong family tradition, and when you have that kind of of uh, indoctrination into it, it's often harder for those people to come out because not only would they believe in their clan group, they believe in their biological family as well. Okay. You know, so it's a strong, yeah. it's a strong tie. And, um, but you know, it, it can still be done. It may, it may take a little bit longer. And then other people join just for the reason that you just mentioned, uh, you know, peer pressure or whatever. You move into a town where there's a lot of that kind of activity going on and they may even run the town or they have influence in the town. So, you know, if you want to do business in that town, uh, you know, you join the local chamber of commerce, you join the local country club, and you join the local KKK. Yeah. You know, that you know, just like a gang. You know, you're gonna move on, move on to that block. You join the gang that runs that block. And then uh, you, you know, you have people like myself who go to prison and start their own gang. There you go. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and then and then you have people who who were never racist to begin with. And they may be working in a in a vocation, uh, like for example, let's take some um, in some rural depressed areas like uh, some coal mining towns. And I've seen this where you have these coal miners who are mostly white, and they have worked in those mines for generations. Right out of high school, they go right to the mines, and they make good money. They're able to pay their mortgage or their rent. They can feed their family, clothe clothe their kids. And, all, and, you know, they are happy-go-lucky. They're happy. Their bills are being paid. They have no worries. They're not racist. They don't hate anybody. They're making their money, and they're happy. But the the owners of the mining company, they get a little greedy, and they figure, you know what? We can save some money. Let's lay off these workers and hire those uh, immigrants that just came here, yeah. uh, you know, from, from wherever they came, because we can pay them less than half of what we're paying our guys and we can save that money because what we pay them is probably 10 times more than they would make in their own country, right? So you lay off the white guys and you hire these other people. And now these white guys are out of work and they're not qualified to do any other kind of job because all they know is mining the coal. That's what their expertise is. So they can't even get work if they wanted. And now the bank is knocking on their door for the mortgage, and they have no money. Um, the kids are not getting fed. They can't afford groceries. The Klan will show up in a town like that, that's depressed like that, and say, hey, you know, the Blacks have the NAACP. The Jews have the ADL. Nobody stands up for the white man but the Klan. You know, your job is not gone, but you're gone, and some such and such has your job. You know, come join us. We'll get your job back. Now, these people who were never racist to begin with what do they have to lose? You know, this person preaching this is telling the truth. My job is still there, but I'm not working there. And somebody less qualified than me has my job. Um, you know, and, and they said they're going to get my job back. I don't have any money. Here, give me an application. What do I have to lose? So they sign on that way. Yeah. Now, back back to this this robe that you got. Did that become like a, 
like your your trophy symbol in a way it it became it became um i guess you know you could call it a trophy uh it wasn't anything that i expected because yeah. the guy was was going to get rid of all his stuff and i said well give it to me and he's like you know you really want it <laughs> and i said yeah i didn't know why but i said yeah i, I do and so he gave it to me he put it in a hefty trash bag you know, plastic bag and tied it up and gave it to me. And um, and then it happened again and again. And then I, I began a collection, three or four or five robes and then on and on. And now I've got a ton of them. Um, so to me, it, it is a signal because that is your badge of honor. That is your uniform. Yeah. That would be like, you know, say General Colin Powell taking off his uniform and handing it over to Osama bin Laden, you know, that would just never happen or you can't perceive it happening. Why would a, why would a Klansman take off his robe and hood and hand it to a black guy? That is a symbol. I'm done. Yeah. 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 So, um, I don't consider it so much as, as a trophy as I do as a testimony that this person is, is sincere. Now, what, what do you, do you like? Do you still have all these robes? Like I do still have that? them all. I do still have them all. And what um, uh, what I'm what I'm doing is I have a five hundred one c three. You know, I'm nonprofit status. I want to open a museum, and I want to display oh. a lot of these things and let it be an interactive museum. I want I want people in the movement who are still in the movement to come and talk. I want people who are out of the movement to come and talk, and I want people who do things like I do to come and talk, you know, and get to know each other. Absolutely. Count me I'll, in. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and there are people um, who, who were raised that way and they don't, they're not quite sure how to deal with it or, or they have a family that's that way. Like, for example, yeah. if, if, if you're an alcoholic, we have Alcoholics Anonymous, right? If you're the wife of an alcoholic, they have, what is it? Um, Al-Anon. And if you're the, 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 the children of alcoholics, you can go to Alateen and they teach you how to deal with your parents, you know, or your spouse or whatever. We need something like that also for people who, who have racist parents or, or a racist wife or a racist husband or whatever. Uh, you know, how do you deal with this? You know, I can't, I can't, you know, some lady says, you know, I, I can't have my my black girlfriend's over to the house anymore because my husband's a racist. You know, she loves her husband, but you know, she wants to to be able to invite her friends over. Um, where where do they go? You know, you got you know uh, gamblers anonymous, you got alcoholics anonymous, uh, narc narco anonymous, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, we need something for that also, and my museum will provide those things. So I've been looking for a building that I can purchase. So that'll be my home base. And in the meantime, I'm going to loan uh, a lot of my uh, collection to a, the uh, Orlando Holocaust Center. They're opening up an exhibit on my work and it nice. will be with them for a year and then it will travel around the country and come back to me. Okay. We have another question for you from Marcus Aurelius. Okay. What does life after the Klan look like for these people? You know, that, that's a great question, Marcus. Um, 
unfortunately, it's a little more difficult than, you know, somebody who um, retires from IBM or something, or, you know, uh, because there is a stigma that is um, attached to that. And you also have to contend with the fact that when you join the Klan, or some of these other organizations, you know, we're just using the Klan in, in a loose, in a broad, loose sense. Right. Some of these other organizations, you take a, an oath, and sometimes a blood oath to join these. And now you have betrayed that oath. When you join, that becomes your family. Those are your brothers and sisters that have your back, that stand with you, you know, and they're in your sphere. And now you have betrayed them and you have left. So now you're out swinging in the wind. And if you come from a, from a family, a biological family that did not raise you like that, uh, they may have already disowned you or distanced themselves from you because they may have Jewish friends or black friends and they don't want their kid at the house when their friends come over for you to insult them or something like that. So they have separated themselves from you. So now you're out there in the wind you can't go back to the clan because you betrayed them. You can't go back to your family because there's a stigma about you and, yeah. and, the, and the friends you grew up with in your neighborhood. If they weren't members, you know, they've disowned you as well. So what usually happens is if there's no support, no foundation, the person seeks to, to fill that void with another group where he can feel comfortable. He may not go back to, the, to that same clan group. He may go join another clan group or a neo-Nazi group or some other Church of the Creator or a white Aryan resistance, you know, whatever else is out there to fill that void. Um, that's, that's what can happen. So this is why it's very important that when people who are working in the uh, de-radical, de-radicalization uh, arena, that they have to give that support yeah. to those people so there's no uh, recidivism, right? For example, let's say you and I are, are good friends and um, which we are now. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I come to you and I tell you, Ed, man, you know, um, I, I got a speeding ticket and I was doing 80 miles an hour in a 55 zone. You know, you're not gonna uh, unfriend me and, and, you know, and say, yeah, I can't, I can't be associated with speeders. Even if I got a DWI, you know, you're still gonna be my friend. You might encourage me, well, you know, next time don't drive drunk or something. Um, but you're not going to unfriend me over a DWI. But if I, but if I tell you that I, you know, that I got arrested for murder or child molestation or, you know, any number of other things, there is a stigma attached to that. And, you know, at that point, you know, you might distance yourself, even though I've, I've paid my price, I've paid my debt, I've gone through whatever rehab, et cetera, et cetera, that, that stigma is still there. You take a look at, for example, somebody like uh, like David Duke. Um, David Duke never gave up his uh, his white supremacist ideology, but he left the Klan a long time ago. But every time you see his name in the news, it never says, uh, David Duke was in Charlottesville or da-da-da-da, David Duke. It always says, ex-Klan leader David Duke. Yeah. It always has that, that prefix to it. He will never be able to escape that. And this is something, you know, that, well, be, well, because David Duke is still in it, you know, maybe he deserves it. But 
Um, but these people, when they renounce this kind of thing, we should work hard to give them a fresh start and let them put the past behind them and let us learn from their past so that others don't make that mistake and help them to move forward. Not always have to carry around that, that ball and chain on themselves because of some past uh, indiscretion, you know, some, 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 you know, they had done out of ignorance or out of whatever. You know, they want a new start, they paid the price, let's help them get on the right track. Uh, otherwise, they, they're apt to, to go back. It's just like um, prison is, um, ha in this country, has a higher recidivism rate than any other country because it's a penal institution. It's not a, a reforming place. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, can, I can honestly say for, for myself, um, there is no going back. I mean, these, these people will, <laughs> I have no doubt in my mind, if I tried to go back, they'd have a hole already dug for me. You know? Well, I'll give you an example of just that. Um, <clears throat> I, I had a friend. Uh, he was a wi you know, widely known uh, white supremacist, uh, neo-Nazi skinhead named uh, David Lynch. And um, David Lynch at one time had the largest uh, skinhead organization in the country. And he, uh, he and I became friends. He got in some trouble. And I helped him. Uh, a lot of the charges that were thrown at him uh, were not were not legit. You know, they they like, threw everything at him and hoped something sticks. Um, so I helped him, and he never forgot that. It took a while, but he finally came around and he got out. And he was trying to help his fiance as well, and he testified against some some former well he as a former member testified against some people still in, and next thing you know, a little while later. He was blown away in his own bed while he was sleeping. It it took me a, a moment to remember who you were referring to, but I remember the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to address this comment. I, I hope I'm not butchering your name, uh, R. Maloch. Advice for people struggling with family who are racist? Yes, absolutely. Um I know from my my personal experience being a former extremist, my family struggled with that. They didn't know how to approach it, what to say to me, you know, or anything. So now, you know, if if I come across people who have a family member who's in one of these groups, I can tell them, listen to them, ask them why, and just listen to, you know, their reasoning and be patient, try and talk to them, don't give up on them. Whatever you do, don't right. just give up on them. You know, because if you give up on them, the only family they have now is this group. And that's exactly. not what you want. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, what else we got here? Um, okay. Uh, Dirk Bone Steel. Love that name. <laughs> How long do you think the Trump effect will set us all back? Uh, saw some family that are affected and they still believe. You know, let, let, let's be clear here. He did not invent racism. It was here long before he came around. 
Uh, what he did was he brought it to the surface. He brought it out from under the carpet. Yeah. He unlocked the closet door. And now I'll, I'll, I'll tell you straight up. Um, I, I played for the guy a long, long time ago before he ever got involved in politics. Uh, I admired some of the things about him. However, when he got into politics, I did not like his policies. I did not support him politically. However, I will say this. I believe that he is the best thing that has happened to this country. Not by anything he did intentionally, but by all of his nonsense. He brought a lot of this stuff forward. Yep. We are responsible for our own betterment, all of us, this whole country. And we should have addressed these problems of racism decades ago, but nobody wanted to talk about it. It was considered a taboo subject. Well, and it's something else that I've seen is a lot of people thought these are just small little fringe groups. Mm -hmm. And now they're realizing it's half this country. That's not a fringe. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, had we had we addressed this decades ago, uh, you know, we wouldn't be facing all this today. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we we have been too complacent, you know, in, in our in our efforts. We have been retro, I mean, uh, reactive instead of uh, proactive. And so, like I said, the good thing about him is that he brought it all to the surface. And now we can identify who, who the players are, what what has to be done. We need to engage in more conversation. We need to listen to one another and, and see what the problem is. Because the best way for any enemy to defeat you is by divide and conquer. Our enemies don't have to worry about dividing us. We do a good job of that ourselves. So now they can just come in and conquer. That's why we have so many different uh, countries hacking into our computers and, and manipulating and putting out false information, disinformation, misinformation, etc. because we're already divided and they can cause contention between us. So we're fighting ourselves and they just come in for the coup de grace. Yeah. Now, you know, we, we all need to, like, like Daryl said, we need to recognize this problem, all of us. And my whole thing is, this isn't for everybody. You know, I, I don't want to be the person to say, you need to get out there and talk to these people. That's right. not for everybody. Right. Um, you know, Daryl's story is completely different than mine. You know, your story is completely different from both of ours. Don't put yourself in a spot that's going to get you in trouble. You know, exactly. Much. <laughs> well, what you know, what I say is this: Listen, if if you're not comfortable on the front line, that's fine. Nobody nobody should push you on onto that front line. Don't go on the front line. Get on the back line. Get on the sideline. Get online. But do something. You don't have to be on the front line. We all have to. It's, everybody on the sideline is is as important as people on the back line or the front line. It's just like your favorite movie. You like it because the actors were great. Yeah. But guess what? The actors cannot do what they do without the director behind the camera that you don't see, and all the stagehands who set up all the props and whatever else. They all are important to that film, not just who stars in the film. They all contribute to making that film an award-winning uh, movie. So. You know, if you can't support from the front, 
the support from the back, support from the side, help help those of us who are on the front line. Yeah. And one thing I want to address is when you're on social media and you come across these people, don't just shut them down and tell them they're ignorant and they're stupid. You know, again, have some dialogue with them. Ask, why do you believe that? Why do you think that? And then if you can put out a counter narrative and tell them, well, uh, and like Daryl said, if you don't know for sure it's a fact, tell them, in my opinion, if you can present something as a fact, do that and make sure you give them citations for it. Get people thinking, you know, um, we, we got another question for you from Marcus. What's your favorite jazz standard to improvise over? And he remembers his dad taking him to see your shows with Chuck Berry back in the day. <laughs> well, I, you know, I played with, I played with him for 32 years with Chuck. Um, my favorite jazz standard to improvise over. Oh gosh. I mean, there are a lot of them, uh, in terms of jazz, maybe one of them would be take the A train, you know, written by Billy Strayhorn, made popular by Duke Ellington. Uh, my favorite song of all time is Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Nice. <laughs> all right. And. And Partridge Family Prospecting, thanks for showing up. Be safe. Um, that kind of goes for everybody here. Thank you for being here and tuning in. You know, um, stay safe out there. And yeah, um, uh, underground media, as as they said, we all have a part to play. No matter how big or small, we all play a part. You know, That's right. you don't have to engage with these people. As long as your part could just be spreading positive positivity and unity, you know, but don't live in an echo chamber, you know, listen to the other side, find out what their fears are, find out. And I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of people that are in these groups and in this movement, a lot of it does come from fear, you know, and that needs to be recognized. It's not that they're just stupid, ignorant, backwoods hillbillies. Some of these people have numerous college degrees. They're very intelligent, but they have a fear. And we have to address that and figure out how to get past it. Well, one of the things, you know, that's, you know I'm glad you brought that up. You know, one of the things that's happening right now uh, is exactly that fear. And what they're fearing is the year 2042. And at which time this country, for the first time in its history, will be 50-50, 50% white, 50% non-white, non-white meaning black, Asian, Latino, whatever else. Uh, we've never seen that before. And that's only uh, two decades from now. Yeah. And, you know, when you have sat on the throne of power for 400 years, you don't want to get off. It's what you know. It's, it's what you're accustomed to do. Yeah. And while there is a large segment of our population, white population, that says, hey, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, it's evolution is what happens. I don't have a problem. There is another large segment of our population that does have a problem with that. And they are feeling uh, or they are perceiving the erasure of their identity. And what the people in the alt-right and uh, 
and the Klan and other neo-Nazi groups tell me is Daryl. I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation. And, and that's what they're fearing. And so we have to address those fears. And those fears are steeped basically in ignorance. And if you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will escalate and create hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. If you don't keep the hatred in check, that will escalate and create destruction. We wanna destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? They could have been harmless and we were just ignorant. And, and what we do about solving this problem, we go about it the wrong way. We go about it top down. Top down does work in certain situations. Like if you're in a corporate structure or departmental structure, I'd say a police department, if the people at the top are loose, the subordinates down below are gonna be loose. If management is tight, people down on the street or on the floor are gonna be tight. And so we've been addressing things top down, the destruction, the fear, the hate. I say this, in these particular examples with racism and individuals, forget about the destruction, forget about the fear, forget about the hate. Those are all symptoms and byproducts of the nucleus. Yep. Go to the root cause. The root cause is ignorance. We fear those things of which we are ignorant. If we cure the, if we cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to destroy. So don't waste our time worrying about destruction. Go to the nucleus. And the good thing is there is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure by providing people with the facts, the proper information, exposing them to things that they otherwise would not have known. That cures the ignorance. And when the ignorance is cured, there is no more fear. All right. Well, I'm going to get ready to wrap this up. I want to thank everybody in the chat. You know, um, awesome questions. Thank you for being the conversation and, you know, giving Daryl so much love and respect in there. Um, I, I lost count of how many compliments you got in the chat. <laughs> now, well, thank you all for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it myself. And, you know, it's, it's your comments and your questions you know, that, that drive me to, to, to make myself a better person yeah. and, and see if I can get some answers too. Because, you know, the concerns, you know, there, there are no stupid questions. No. You ask whatever you want to ask. And, you know, we need to provide answers because there are other people out there who have the same questions that you do, which proves we all are human beings. Yeah. Now, before we go, what, what is your nonprofit? Well, it's a 501c3. And I'm thinking about calling it the National Ku Klux Klan Museum, but it will, okay. it will encompass all different kinds of, uh, of racism and, and that kind of thing. Okay. I like it. You know, you'll, you'll have to keep me updated on Absolutely. the status of that. I will. I definitely want to be involved. Now, okay. um, do you have any other links for yourself that you would like yeah, to share? Yeah, my, my website is daryldavis.com, D-A-R-Y-L, only one R, D-A-R-Y-L-D-A-V-I-S.com. You know, go visit me there, drop me an email, you know, let's be friends. Yeah. 
And um, you do also volunteer with uh, uh, Beyond Barriers? Absolutely. Yep. Um, you know, Jeff Jeff uh, Scoop is my yeah. brother. I'm always happy, happy to volunteer with him and do some intervention work. Uh, I think he's doing a fantastic job. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, his assistant, um, Acacia, is a very good friend of mine. And uh, she's doing a wonderful job as well. And, you know, it's things like this that that this country needs. You know, we, we have laws that legislate stuff and all that kind of thing. But it's always a lot stronger when it comes from the people themselves. When people like Jeff, myself, you, Ed, and some of the people there in your chat come together on a, on a grassroots level and organize this. Because people who are in charge, they're only in charge for four years. We're going to be around a lot longer than four years, buddy. So yeah. we're the ones who, who should be responsible for, for, for getting this thing together. Now, Acacia um, Underground Media should have a blue wrench. So if you would be kind enough to leave a link for Beyond Barriers in the chat for everybody now or in the future watching this, you can find out more about Daryl by going to daryldavis.com. And again, that's D-A-R-Y-L-D-A-V-I-S.com. And you can also go to Beyond Barriers to find out more about Daryl. All right. I want to thank you so much for coming on my channel and giving us, you know, some of the history about what got you into this and some of the, the methods that you use. Um, that's amazing. You know, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll consider this part one. We'll do part two sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you are definitely welcome back and we will have to work on hooking that up. All right. Uh, before we go, as we always say here on my channel, take care of yourself. Try and take care of one another. And don't be a boogin'. Everybody, I want to say on behalf of both myself and uh, the rest of the staff here at Beyond Barriers, I want to give a heartfelt uh, thank you for choosing to tune in tonight and, and to learn. Uh, you know, this is nothing short of amazing what we do, and we will continue to put out material like this, but we can't do it without you. Check out www.beyondbarriersusa.org.